You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Good morning. Now, I'm not going to make the same mistake. I know my, my skin is pasty white, so I want to step out of the sun because I will melt otherwise. This is, uh, can you see me now? Maybe I'll move this way. No, that's not any better. No. No, we're good. Okay, well, I apologize in advance if you can't see me. And this is also the first Sunday where I'll be preaching from my computer. Totally paper-free. And it's kind of scary for me, so if I, I hope you'll give me some grace on that this morning. Good morning, everybody. Um, good to see you all. Happy New Year. Um, if this is your first time to South Bay Church, we welcome you. Thank you for visiting us. We hope you come back every Sunday. We're glad you're here. Uh, we have a welcome station out in front. Make sure you stop by and get a gift if you didn't get a gift if you're a first-time visitor. Only first-timers, though, okay? No multiple gifts. Um, we're in the middle of MLK weekend. I understand there was some amazing service projects going on. Um, for those of you new to us, a few times a year we mobilize as a church and we go out and we find needs in our community that we can meet particularly those in need. So I understand, Dave, it was 177, 167 yesterday that served, and we're, we're not done yet. There's some more projects tomorrow. So that's very good. Thank you for those of you that participated. We had all kinds of projects going on around South Bay. So we're going to continue this series called The Force Awakens. Are there any Star Wars fans in the house? Anybody tired of hearing about Star Wars? It's kind of, it's kind of old news. <laughs> Seems like old news now. But we're continuing the series to January. It'll be over in January. But I saw the movie, The Force Awakens, with my wife, Mia, and my two boys over the holidays. And I got to say, it was pretty awesome. I think it was the best of the seven, personally. Um, I know. I think it was. Although I do have to work with my son, my youngest son, Ethan. Because we were talking to some folks after the movie, and they hadn't seen the movie yet. And the first thing Ethan says, Han Solo died. And you just saw these people were like, oh, they were just devastated. And of course, yes, I just ruined it for all of you that haven't seen it. Yeah. The apple, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? The apple doesn't far, far from the tree. So, anyway, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Now, I'm told, I'm told that there was a visit last Sunday by Master Yoda and the Jedi Council. And I also heard that there were cheers in Manhattan Beach as Jar Jar Binks was killed by Darth Vader. Actually, there were calls to the police department in Manhattan Beach with the cheers of joy, I think. But anyway, if you are a Star Wars fan, uh, you'll be delighted we're continuing the series. If you're not a Star Wars fan, I'm concerned about your salvation. How could you not appreciate such a work of art as Star Wars? And even if you're a hater, you can still get something out of this today, I'm confident, because you clearly need God very, very badly. But how many, of you, how many of you remember seeing Star Wars? How many were you alive in 1977 to begin with? Okay, quite most of us. Okay, how many of you remember seeing the movie in the theater in 1977? Okay, I do too. 
I do too. I remember in 1977, I was a young chap. This is a picture of the theater that I saw Star Wars in in 1977. It's in Perry, Iowa. Now, those of you that remember me, you know, I'm from a very, very small town in Iowa. This is the only theater in a 50-mile radius, literally, of where I grew up. And Mia's been there. She can attest it does not look as glamorous as it does in this picture. This was taken, I think, in 1977. But, you know, it was a dollar to go to the movie in 1977, and that was prime time. And I think this was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. And, of course, the commercialization of Star Wars isn't anything new either, because my older brother and I had some very cool Star Wars paraphernalia. My brother had the Luke Skywalker doll. Now, it was cool. We would never call it a doll in the 1977. It was an action figure, right? Right. No one, no boy in the 1970s would be caught playing with dolls, especially my brother. We also had the X-Wing fighter. Any of you have this? This was a high-tech toy for the 1970s. You notice there's an R2-D2. I don't know if there's a pointer on here, but there's an R2-D2 in the back. You could push R2-D2 and the wings would separate into an X. And then there was a button right behind R2-D2. You push the button and the red laser cannon would come on and it would make laser cannon sounds. It was really amazing for the 1970s. But there's something about the Star Wars story that intrigues us, you know, that draws us in. And I don't know why that is. I think we're excited about the battle of good versus evil. Um, we want good to prevail. And there's many a grown man who would love to become part of the Star Wars story. Let's be honest, men. We would love to be Han Solo or Luke Skywalker. And we, we daydream of that. Don't repress your true feelings. <laughs> Why else would grown men buy toy lightsabers? Right? So here's a picture. He's not here to defend himself. This isn't really fair. But I'm sorry to break it to you. Star Wars is purely fiction, man. It's not real. This is a picture of Steve. Um, we were doing our Jedi Council rehearsal in his living room, and we all had these puny little like, lightsaber toys, right? And Steve goes in his closet, pulls out the full-on the full on lightsaber. It's the real thing. And he look at him. He's just so intense in that picture. He's just like, he's serious. He's all business. So I rest my case. Men want to be part of Star Wars, right? But it's not real. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry it's not a real story. But what if I told you that there is a real war going on in the universe? A much more dramatic war. One that's been unfolding since the beginning of time. It's an epic battle between goodness and extreme evil. And, and the true story is still happening today. Now, does that sound intriguing? Yeah. Here's something even more exciting. You, yes, you can be a main character in that epic saga. Pretty cool. Do you believe that? Yeah. You can read all about this story in the Bible. And it's an intense, it's an intriguing saga. I can't possibly do it justice with my own words, but if you'll indulge me, I'll just give you a few high points from God's story. Just think of it as a trailer, if you will, of God's story. A long, long time ago, before Star Wars, God created the universe. And he also, when he created Earth, he created man from dust. And he made man in his image as the centerpiece of his creation. And he placed him in this beautiful paradise called the Garden of Eden. God gave man this elevated position within his creation. Man was to take care of God's creation, and man was to rule over all the living creatures. 
And God knew that man needed a suitable helper. For, so from the man, what did he design? He designed woman. Good move, God. Good move. <laughs> and he lived together with the man and the woman in the paradise that he created. So in the Garden of Eden, man and woman were first introduced to this evil force. And for t- purposes of today, we'll just call it the dark side. A fallen angel took the form of a serpent and tempted the man and the woman to disobey God's only command. And disobey they did, and in doing so, that changed everything in their relationship with God and with his creation. Man and woman could no longer be in God's presence, and so they were ejected from paradise, and they were also cursed for their disobedience. So the plot thickens, right? But God still loved them as a father loves his children. And he wanted nothing more than for mankind to come back to him, to obey him, to be restored to him. But man didn't listen to God. And man grew in their wickedness until God had to send a flood to wipe out all of mankind from the earth, except one man and his family. And the man's descendants eventually were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But in his love, God didn't forget about them. He raised up a leader to lead his beloved children out of slavery, and he eventually brought them into this beautiful, rich land. And for the next 1,500 years or so, the dark side would repeatedly tempt God's people to forget about him and to reject him, even though God faithfully sent many prophets to warn them, to get them to turn back. None of the prophets had a lasting impact. So eventually, God took an entirely different approach to save his people. And it was an approach that involved incredible pain to himself personally. But in doing so, he opened the door for people to be in his presence once again for all eternity, just as he had intended at the very beginning. So God's story, when you look at it as a storyline, as a trailer, it is pretty amazing. It's very amazing. And it makes Star Wars pale in comparison. And in this age in which we're living, we've reached the climax of God's epic saga because he's opened the door for you and for me to be reconciled to him. You can once again be with him in paradise forever, according to the original design. And that's something that the prophets of old longed to see. And as I mentioned, you can be a major character in God's amazing saga. But the question is, how? How do you become a character? In God's amazing story. I'm glad you asked because that's the subject of my sermon today. In keeping with um, the theme of Star Wars, as as Brian mentioned, the the title of my sermon is The Return of the Disciple. And we're going to be talking about three things today. First of all, we'll talk about what God really wants from you as a character in his story. Secondly, we'll talk about a secret weapon Sound interesting? A secret weapon that the dark side is using against you. And finally, we'll talk about how you can return to the master and become one of the heroes in God's story. Sound like a good agenda? Let's pray. God, we just come to you today. We just ask you to really use the scriptures, God. Use what we're going to talk about to really inspire us, God. To inspire us that we can be part of your story but also to show us, God, the way that we do that and the way you've designed for us to do that. I just pray that we come away uh, just inspired, but also just um, challenged and just making some practical decisions for how we can return as disciples in 2016 and that you can use us, God. Use us in your epic story. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How do you fit into God's story? 
So for the sake of discussion, let's just uh, pretend for a moment that you're God for a day. Okay? I hope that's not too uh, irreverent. But you're God for a day. And your precious kids, who you love deeply, have been incited to rebel against you. And they've made bad decisions, and they've made themselves your enemy. And they don't realize it yet, as kids often don't. But unless you intervene, your kids are facing certain death. So to intervene, you know that you need to send a superhero of sorts to get their attention and save them from certain doom. And you know that your superhero will face intense attacks from the dark side. You know that your superhero has to be morally perfect because he's going to be the model for your children to follow. You know that your hero will have to endure severe pain because he's going to be tortured and killed for your children. So you know where I'm going with this. How you design your hero is so very important. After all, your children's lives are at stake here. So what you really want your superhero to be like is pretty important. It's a big decision. If the lives of my boys were at, at risk, I've thought about this. If my kids, my two boys were at risk, what would I design as a superhero? What would I want that superhero to be like? Well, I had the, the, the benefit of thinking about this before today. So I think about my superhero. They would have to have physical strength, something like the Hulk. Um, and then they'd also have to have command. So anybody know Aquaman? The super friends from the 1970s. I think he is the most undersold hero out there today. I really do. This was the coolest picture I could find of Aquaman. Why Aquaman? Because you remember he could send out telepathic signals and all the sea creatures would follow and obey him? That was amazing. Such command. And you never know when the attack's going to come from the water. So you need Aquaman on the team. Batman, the intelligence of Batman. I mean, all the gadgetry, he has to be smart dude. You need speed, so the flash, because you have to get there quickly. And then you have to have a spiritual element, so I picked an angel, a fearsome angel. Because you know in the Bible, angels make people fall down in fear, and so you need the angel on the team. So my hero would look a lot like some combination of those various uh, things. And to save our own kids, we as parents would design superheroes unlike the world had ever seen. Because when it comes to our children, there is no price too high to pay for them. And that's how our Father in Heaven felt as well. There's no price too high for his kids. But actually, God didn't need to design a new hero. Because he already had one at his right hand. And it was one that it would hurt God immensely to give up. And that hero, as we know, was his son. What the Bible calls his begotten son. Now, did any of you use the word begotten a lot in your daily language? Okay, I didn't know what begotten mean. I finally went and looked it up. Begotten is a word we don't use, but it means to become the father of something. So when you beget, you beget something of the same kind of as yourself. So a, a man would beget human babies, right? A bird would beget baby birds. A rhino would beget baby rhinos. God would beget God, baby God, right? God has one son who is God. I, I know you're saying baby Jesus. I can't help it. Little baby Jesus. He has one God, one son who's God like he's God. So his son voluntarily stepped forward. And he voluntarily agreed to come to earth to save his children. But contrary to most of what us would do, he didn't come to earth as this ripped superhero with a cape on. 
and tights, right? <laughs> he came as a poor Jewish man yeah. in the ancient Middle East under the cruel Roman Empire. He was born in a barn among animals, you know, not to a, a position of influence or of power. You know, he, he was born to humility, no stretchy pants. And Isaiah 53, you know, we get, this, we get this vision. You know, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah was talking about what this superhero would be like. In Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2, it says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So God's superhero had no beauty, had no majesty. There was nothing about his appearance that would make you say, wow, that's a superhero right there. I mean, here's a picture, you know, that actually has gone viral on the Internet. Some of you maybe have seen this. A British artist worked with this team of forensic anthropologists, whatever that is. But apparently they did it scientifically. They looked at all the artifacts of Jesus' time, and they looked at the skeletal remains, and they really did a, what they think is a very accurate depiction of what Jesus could have looked like. So whether you believe it or not, it's up to you, but it's scientifically accurate, according to the forensic anthropologist. But Isaiah says that Jesus was ugly and dejected by human standards. People hid their faces from him. They didn't like him. He was a man of suffering who endured a lot of pain. It doesn't sound much like a hero by our modern standards, does it? In Philippians 2, it says about Jesus, it says, Who in being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus didn't have the characteristics of superheroes that we adore so much in the movies today. He was God, but he made himself nothing. He was more concerned about humility than pride. He was more concerned about being a slave instead of being a king. He was more concerned about self-denial than self-indulgence. He was concerned about being last instead of being first. Amen. About storing treasures in heaven instead of storing up treasures on earth. And Jesus had the very traits that the world today scorns. But ironically, those are the traits that made him a hero. Those are the very traits that empowered him to save God's children. You see, Jesus never would have allowed himself to be nailed to a cross as a criminal in your place. And to descend into hell in your place and my place. And to give you the credit for his perfect life if he were prideful and self-consumed and wanted to be first. Jesus chose the way of humility and weakness. And it's, hum it's his humility and his self-denial and his love that saves you and me. And it took him to an unimaginably painful death as he was tortured physically and emotionally and spiritually. And he was separated from his father. 
But death, as we know, couldn't keep its hold on him, and God raised him from the dead. But before Jesus returned to heaven, he had very specific direction for people and, their, and his followers. And most of us know this scripture very well. We've memorized it in Matthew 28. Now, this was Jesus' last words to his 11, 12 disciples before they went back. Actually, 11 disciples before he went back to heaven. And it says in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. It says, Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Familiar scripture. But Jesus wants everyone to be his disciple. That is, to become like him, his pupil. You know, to, to lay down your life for others like he did. To serve those in need like he did. To, to be last, not first. To be bringing the good news to the people that have no hope. You know, Jesus changed the course of history. And his disciples are really his agents to change the world. Because humility and self-denial and love, these are the things that make you weak in the, in the world's eyes. But these are the things that make you a deadly weapon in the fight against the dark side. Because once all nations have become true disciples of Jesus, the dark side, how could it have any power? So the world needs the return of the disciple. As Princess Leia would say, it's our only hope. And with so much writing on discipleship and how important it is to Jesus and to God, what takes you off track from being a disciple? I mean, what, what stops you from being what God wants you to be? Do you miss the mark when it comes to being his disciple and learning to obey everything he commanded? I, I think this is where you can take a cue from your conscience. Because I believe that, that God embeds in us a sense of morality, of right and wrong. Uh, I mean, why else would we have this common just outrage when something evil happens? And why else would we also be just inspired by stories of heroes that lay down their life? You know, I, I, some, somehow there's this standard we have. We know there's a standard of conduct that we ought to follow. But our actual behavior doesn't match up with the standard. Do you ever feel that way? I know I do. Uh, there, there's a word in Greek that means to miss the mark. And that word is hamartia. I looked it up. Hamartia. That's exactly how I felt at times as a disciple. Hamartia. I missed the mark. The English Bible translates this Greek word hamartia into the word sin. <clears throat> to sin means to miss the mark. And I certainly missed the mark of who Jesus wants me to be because I'm a sinner. And throughout our lives, there's the dark side there. It hates you. The dark side is intent on neutralizing you. It tempts you to not be a disciple. It wants nothing more than to subjugate you, to dominate you, you know, to keep you away from Jesus. And what's even more scary is that the dark side has powerful weapons to use against you. You know, it has things like fear and lies and doubt. These are all some of the tools at Satan's disposal. If you've seen Star Wars, you'll be familiar with the secret weapon of the dark side, right? All right, it's uh, the evil Emperor Palpatine and, and Darth Vader conspire to create this Death Star. And the Death Star, as you remember, is this huge planet-shaped spacecraft that can destroy entire planets. Uh, the Death Star tri strikes 
fear into the heart of the Jedi. It's very scary. But in God's real story, the dark side does have a death star, so to speak. In fact, the dark side is probably using this weapon against you, even as you sit here today. And the Death Star tempts you to be exactly the opposite of what Jesus intends a disciple to be. So it may very well be the most deadly weapon that can be used against you. So what is the Death Star? The Death Star is the sin of pride. It's the sin of pride. Pride is a sin of the heart. And it it, it makes you pit yourself against other people. And to think that you are superior to other people. And not only does pride make you think that you're better than other people, but it, it may even think you, make you think that you're, you know more than God. I've been reading this author, C.S. Lewis. Probably heard of C.S. Lewis. He's, he's known as probably the most influential writer, Christian writer of the 20th century. And I'm going to be sharing some of his thoughts today on this subject of pride. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin, the utmost evil, the essential vice. And Lewis writes in his famous book, Mere Christianity, and I'll just quote it here. It says, the Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Now, that's a pretty big statement. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud person or proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down... You cannot see something that is above you. Pride will keep you looking down on people and cause you to miss God who's above you. Pride's also a stealthy weapon, isn't it? I mean, if you think you're not affected by pride, most likely you have been mortally wounded by it and you don't even know you're bleeding. I mean, just case in point, I mean, I... Somebody told me years ago I should read A Prideful Guide's Soul to Humility. It's a great book I hear. But I always told myself, "Ah, I've got other problems. I don't need to worry about that. I rest my case. Pride is a stealthy weapon, right? Think about how the dark side has used the Death Star of pride throughout God's story. You know, at some point before the Garden of Eden, we don't know exactly when, one of God's very angels was cast out of heaven because of pride. This is a powerful angel that apparently believed he could be like God. And I I run across this scripture in Isaiah, which I had never actually seen before, but it's a fascinating depiction. You look in Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So who is Isaiah talking about here? Someone fallen from heaven. Someone who thought he could be like God. And when Adam and Eve come on the scene... In Genesis 3, we see our first glimpse of this wicked angel who was thrown down to earth. And he took the form of a serpent, as I mentioned, and he he used the death star of pride against Adam and Eve. It's a pivotal moment in God's story when Adam and Eve in their pride disobey the only rule that God gave them. 
And that rule was simply not to eat the fruit of one single tree. Pretty simple, not complicated. But God said if they ate that fruit, they would surely die. And in Genesis 3, picking it up in verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. And she also gave of her husband and who was with her and he ate. So Adam and Eve saw that this forbidden fruit could make them wise. And in their pride, they believed Satan's lie. They pridefully believed that they could be like God. And Satan used pride to trick them into thinking that the creation could be just as intelligent and as awesome as the creator. So not only did, did pride bring down this angel, but it's pride that ejected our human ancestors from paradise. I mean, do you see why C.S. Lewis calls pride the utmost sin, the utmost evil? Because it is. And unfortunately, the Death Star of Pride is just as active today as it was in the day of Adam and Eve. And at the base of it all, I believe it's pride that causes us to miss God. As C.S. Lewis says, you can't see something above you when you're always looking down. And it's pride that makes us look down on everyone and everything. And pride makes us believe ever so subtly that we know best, and that we can be our own God. Just as Adam and Eve thought that they could disregard God's command and become like God. And I'm afraid that Many people today fall into the same trap, although it surfaces, and pride surfaces, I believe, in different ways. I mean, at one extreme, you have people who just blatantly reject the real God. I mean, they, they live as if they were God themselves. They scorn the Lord of the universe. They, they're totally self-consumed. They're arrogantly thinking of God as some quaint, old-fashioned idea for the weak-minded. So that's one end of the spectrum. But I think probably more common are people who have a form of godliness— they believe in a God, but they find that they, they try to mold God to be more to their liking in their pride. They, 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 they want a God that approves of their choices and their beliefs. And in their pride, they can, they can try to explain away God's commands or, or try to avoid them as much as possible. <laughs> and still others, you know, may believe the true God and they may follow the true God and they follow the rules. But then in their pride, they begin to think highly of their own morality. Uh, and pride can cause them to look down on those who are not as spiritually enlightened or as moral as they are. And that, in many ways, describes me, as I'll get to in a moment. But I think most of us have read Jesus's parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I'm not going to read it today, but, but you know the story. There's a wealthy man who had two sons. And the younger one asked his father to give him the share of the inheritance before his father died. Which, by the way, in the ancient Middle Eastern culture was the ultimate insult to the father. And probably would be today, too, right? If, if you asked your, your, your father for their inheritance before he died. But back then, that was a big insult. Yet the father complied. And he gave the son the money. And the father went out and he went to foreign, or excuse me, the son went out to foreign lands, squandered all of that wealth and wild living. And the, young, the older son, meanwhile, stayed home and he worked hard for the father. But eventually the younger son comes to his senses while he's eating pig food. And in humility, he returns to the father. And to the young son's surprise, the father runs to meet him, throws his arms around him, kisses him, throws a big party for him, and welcomes him back to the family. 
And in this parable, we usually focus on the kindness and the forgiveness and the love of the Father. And it does represent how God feels about repentant sinners. But in his book, The Prodigal God, Dr. Timothy Keller does a really interesting study of both sons. And we see that pride actually plagued both sons, but in different ways. The younger son was lost because in his pride, he blatantly rejected the father. Yet when he returned in humility, he was forgiven. The older son, on the other hand, suffered from pride too, but differently from his younger brother. He took pride in his good moral life, and he looked down on his wayward brother. If you look in Luke 15, starting in verse 28, it says, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, and he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you have never gave me even a young goat." So I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So the older son's pride made him think that the father owed him something for living a good life. And he was outraged that his good behavior hadn't earned him any sort of reward from the father. And we find in the end of this parable that the older son was actually more lost and alienated from the father than the repentant younger son. Because in his pride, he wouldn't go in. And he thought his father owed him something. As I've reflected on that parable, I I realize that I'm a lot like the older brother. I mean, I've taken pride in my religion I think about 17 years now as a disciple, and and I can feel like God should be proud of me for that. Like he owes me something for for, for being good, uh, some sort of special reward. And in my heart, honestly, I mean, I can look down on someone that that sometimes hasn't followed the rules like I have. Uh, I can look down on someone that maybe goes to another church and assume they couldn't possibly know the truth like I do. My religious pride is offensive to God. I can't look up while I'm looking down. It's also my pride that that has caused the most hurt in my marriage. And I think so easily I can discount Mia's thoughts and Mia's feelings because I think I know better. It's pride that stunted my own spiritual growth. I mean, Mia and I, as you all know, spent seven years in the Seattle church. And for many of those years, my pride stopped me from really building deep relationships with the people in the church. And in pride, I didn't think I really needed the people that God put in my life. And I didn't really grow spiritually during many of those years. It's my pride that I think has damaged my relationships. You know, it stopped me at times from being vulnerable with other men in the church because I don't want them to know my weaknesses because of my pride. I don't want them to think less of me. Pride really has been my death star as I've thought about it and reflected on it. And I think it's really held me back from knowing God better. And from being a more effective disciple. And yes, I need to read the book, A Prideful Guide Sold to Humility. That's my resolution. (laughs) So is Death Star, is this Death Star of pride pulling you in? I mean, some questions that really were convicting to me that I'll just share with you if pride is affecting you. First question is, have you ever felt that you deserve God's favor because of your good life? Have you ever tried to explain away a scripture that is particularly challenging to you in your way of life? Do you want things your way because you know it has to be the best way? 
Do you see the sins of others much better than you see your own? Do you regularly ask for advice from other godly people? And when you get that advice and it conflicts with what you want or what you think, what do you do? Do you bristle when you're challenged or corrected with the Bible by a godly person? Are you impatient with others, especially those that you think aren't as smart or don't understand your situation or that are weaker than you are? Do you have difficulty admitting your weaknesses and confessing your sins to others, which God calls us to do? And then finally, do you consistently miss discipling times? Those are counseling times when we get together with other, other people in the church. With the people God has put in your life, do you miss those times? Do you prioritize them? Or do you feel like discipling is just a nice-to-have, not a must-have in your life? Those, those questions were particularly challenging to me. But do you agree that pride is the death star? Pride stops you from being like Jesus. Pride is the opposite of humility, just like darkness is the opposite of light. And if left unchecked, pride will make you God's enemy. Proverbs 16.5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. James 4.6, that is why the scripture said, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So back to God's story, there is a dark side that hates mankind. It's continually attacking you with this Death Star and all the other weapons they have. So where will you possibly get the power to overcome the dark side and the Death Star? And that's my final point, which is to return as a disciple, we should return to the master. To return as a disciple, we should return to the master. So in Star Wars, we know the story well. While young Skywalker is being trained by Jedi Master Yoda in the ways of the Force, Master Yoda scolds Luke for saying that he would try to do better. And what does Yoda say? No. Read with me. No. Try not. Do or do not. There is no try. I can't do the Yoda voice, but that's what Yoda says. We love to repeat that line, famous line. I've been thinking, what did Yoda mean? And I I think what Yoda meant is that trying harder is not the entire answer. You may have the same reaction as Luke Skywalker when you realize that you failed to be like Jesus, when you have not been humble, when you've not been selfless, if you've been more consumed with the world than with heaven and the kingdom, if you've not loved the people that God's put in your life, the response to that realization can be, I'm going to try harder. I mean, I'm personally so guilty of that reaction. It's, I know it's probably a shock to you, but I fall, I'll fall, wolf, <laughs> I fall woefully short of what Jesus designed me to be. I just do. And, you know, I set in 2016 some New Year's resolutions that I would try to be more humble. And I'll try to not be so anxious. And I'll try to be a better spiritual leader of my wife. And I set those on, on December 30th. And of course, by January 2nd at 8 a.m., I was already frustrated because I was still anxious and I was still prideful. I tried harder, but I was still in sin. I tried harder and try harder is my default mode. I try harder, I try harder, and it simply doesn't work. And it's not just me that tries harder. I mean, here's some stats I found about New Year's resolutions. The percent of Americans who usually or sometimes make New Year's resolutions, the majority, about two-thirds, 62%. The percent of people who are successful 
and achieving the resolution, 8%. And if they're really talking honest, maybe less, but 8%. So we try hard as, as people. That's our, that's our common denominator. We try harder. And even as we try to be more like Jesus, we see that the death start of pride can still be at work. I mean, you may think that you can become a better person by your own efforts. And of course, we do need to make every effort to become like Jesus. Don't get me wrong. We do need to try, but be careful. Remember that pride makes you compare yourself to other people. So the danger is that you begin to see yourself better than your neighbor. Because you're trying much harder than they are to be good. And you've been trying harder for years and they have not. So that puts you in a better standing with God and you deserve some sort of reward for your effort. That's where our hearts can go. But listen carefully. That's a very dangerous place for your heart to be. Because taking pride in your own trying makes your heart more like a Pharisee than a disciple. And we we know how Jesus felt about the religious Pharisees that thought they could earn God's favor by their pious lives. If you allow your heart to take pride in your moral efforts, Satan can effectively neutralize you from being a disciple. I love this quote again from C.S. Lewis. He says, the devil laughs. He's perfectly content to see you become chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he's setting you up in the dictatorship of pride. In other words, if pride is the motivation for your good works or the outcome of your good works, Satan's already beaten you. And he, he knows that he's getting you with pride. Go ahead and be chaste. Be pious. Do all those religious things. Do the right thing. As long as you take pride in it, he wins. As I mentioned earlier, God puts a moral standard on your heart. I believe that. But be honest with yourself. Have you really met that standard? Over and over and over again, we fail. Even when we try harder. Something inside of us is broken. Can we ever really achieve on our own this elusive standard that haunts us. I mean, think of it this way. If you really could achieve moral perfection and goodness on your own, God looks foolish. Because if you could save yourself, God didn't need to send his son to save you. But since God is our designer and he knows best, I don't think he's a foolish man. I don't think he's a foolish, not a man, foolish person, foolish being. Um, And since I'm on this C.S. Lewis kick, I'll just share one last quote from him about trying, because I think this sums it up nicely. It says, now we cannot in that sense discover our failure to keep God's law, except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds that the idea, if we try harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the moment, the vital moment, at which you turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. You must do this. I can't. I love how God works. Because when you realize or remember that you are a broken piece that belongs in the scrap pile, and when you admit to him that you cannot do it on your own, that is actually the beginning of power, you see. It's when you finally acknowledge that you need a savior. That's when the master can really begin to help you. 
And that's what I mean by returning to the master. To return to the master is to let yourself be motivated by a very simple truth. And this is the very simple truth. Jesus already lived a perfect life. And he will give his disciples the credit for that perfect life on the day when you have to stand before the judge. When the judge sees a disciple, he will see Jesus. So do you think it's important for you to be a disciple? When you understand and embrace this and the master and his gift, you're now prepared to become a powerful disciple and a key player in God's story because it's no longer your story with you trying to fit God into it. It's now God's story and he's bringing you along into his amazing adventure. And tragically, I think Jesus is still a mystery for some of us. I think for, for some, I mean, as long as you're under this dictatorship of pride and you think you can be good enough on your own, Jesus will be of no value to you whatsoever. Jesus works through people who know they need a savior. So the world doesn't need more people who are proud of their goodness. The world, and I believe South Bay Church, needs the return of the disciple who's fueled by gratitude. Because when you're motivated by the master and what he has done for you, then you will have the heart that Jesus is looking for. Amen. You will be humble. You will be selfless and ready to serve. You will be loving, even to those that don't love you back. You'll seek out help from other disciples to help you grow spiritually. And you'll joyfully make Jesus your Lord. So we need the return of the disciple in 2016. Amen? Amen. So with the return of the disciple, let gratitude for the master be your motivation. Because I believe grateful, humble disciples of Jesus are unstoppable. And the good news is that God's story isn't over yet. I mean, if, you're, if you're here as a guest today, sit down with the person that invited you and their friends and study the Bible and learn more about what a true disciple really is and how you can join this amazing story. After all, you can be among the ranks of heroic disciples who have fought the dark side, who have saved others and have overcome. And I'll close with the words of the master himself, a scripture that I love in John 16. It says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous, I have conquered the world. Let's return as disciples in 2016. Let's do it out of gratitude for the master and what he's done for us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us. 